Welcome to the Resonate Boise Sermons Podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from our site pastor, Jonah Link, as he starts our sermon series going through the book of Mark. Today, we're starting to work through the gospel of Mark. Starting to work through the gospel of Mark, and I'm super stoked for this. The book of Mark is the shortest of the four gospels, yet it is still long. There is still so much within the pages of Mark that we can gleam from, that we can learn from, and I'm stoked for this. We could literally spend years in the book of Mark. We won't, but we totally could. There is so much there for us. We're going to work through Mark, all the way up until Easter Sunday. That's 14 weeks from now. I know none of you are thinking about Easter right now. I am. That is how we are working through the book of Mark. We're going to end on Easter Sunday. And so as you think about 14 weeks, you're like, man, maybe we should take a little bit longer. Well, this is how we're going to view the book of Mark and how we're working through it. Have any of you done a cross-country road trip? Anyone? Just Nicole? I haven't either, Um, but this is how I want you to view how we're working through the book of Mark. Imagine you, your family, your closest friends, you jump in your dinky old motorhome and you go all the way across the country. That is your plan. You're about to get in this thing, go all the way across the country. Got a month to do it and you cannot see everything. (laughs) You can't make stops at every single place you'd love to stop at. So if you don't wanna be riddled with anxiety, you're gonna sit down and you're gonna plan all your stops, right? Some of you might just go for it. That's not me whatsoever, but you might plan out all of your stops along the way. And so that's what I've done for us up until Easter. Planned out some stops along the way throughout the book of Mark that we're gonna really intentionally dive into. In the meantime, throughout the weeks, we've built out a devotional schedule for us as a church. I still want you to dive into every single word in the book of Mark and let the Spirit speak to you and God transform you through every single word in the gospel of Mark. And so we have a PDF available to you guys. It'll be sent out via email to all of our owners. And if you want to get it from your village leader, it'll be accessible that way as well. So over the last year of our church about, I've really intentionally been trying to take us somewhere as a church that I think is incredibly valuable to us. And I I felt in the deepest part of my heart that God really desires me to do my very best to take us to a place where your love for Jesus is deepened and your obedience to him is increased. Those two specific things, and it involves all sorts of different disciplines and aspects that we've talked about over the last year or so. And it's led us into some incredible passages and books. We worked through the Sermon on the Mount all summer and into the fall, and I think that was incredibly transformational. I know it was for me and our staff, praised God on Monday, that it's been transformational for our church as a whole, as we've heard stories of God moving in your hearts and using these texts to encourage you and build you up. We work through Colossians and talk through the marks of mature Christians, as Paul articulates. I think the gospel of Mark is going to help build on that. And so that's why I'm really excited to be in here. And so before we jump into verse one, there's one more thing that I want to do. I want to give us the proper context and background into the gospel of Mark, why it was written and who wrote it. And so some of the earliest Christian traditions has John Mark as the most probable author. And and that's why the book is labeled. If you were to open up your Bible, look at the top, it probably says the gospel according to Mark. 
That is why he's the most probable author of this book. And what's fascinating about John Mark is he was likely a young boy during the life and ministry of Jesus, like a young boy. He wasn't like walking alongside Jesus more than likely. And so how can we claim that this is an eyewitness account of Jesus's life? Well, I think the evidence, if you were to look at um, the Bishop of Hierapolis, he lives just after the time of Jesus. He wrote this about Mark specifically. He said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, but not in order, all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord or been one of his followers, but later, as I said, a follower of Peter. Peter used to teach as the occasion demanded without giving systematic arrangement to the Lord's sayings so that Mark did not err in writing down some of the things that he has recalled them. For he had one overriding purpose, to omit nothing, to leave out nothing that he had heard, and to make no false statements in his account. And so Mark is literally Peter's scribe, his right-hand man, his interpreter. He walked really closely with Peter, who, as we know, walked really closely with Jesus. So many scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is Peter's eyewitness account essentially, as Mark records these things. And so three features of this piece of literature that I want you to note that is going to be, I think, really helpful for us as we tease through it week after week is, number one, these events aren't necessarily in chronological order. That's something important for us to note. Mark wrote them down how he remembered them from Peter. So this isn't a chronological book of the life of Jesus, though we see it's the start of Jesus' ministry today, and chapter 16 is his resurrection. Those are in order. So it's just not necessarily completely in chronological order. Number two, Mark wanted to record what Jesus did, record his actions. If you were to look at the Gospel of John, there is a ton of red letter writing, which if that's the type of Bible you have is the sayings of Jesus. John really cared about what Jesus said. Therefore, there is a ton of what Jesus said within that Gospel account. With Mark, he really cares about what Jesus did. So you're going to see far less teachings of Jesus and more his actions, what he did. Number three, it is action-packed. If you have the ESV translation of scripture, you're going to find the word immediately over 40 times in this gospel account. Mark goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. It feels like choppy and you're just cruising. And that's partially why we're going to go through it in 14 weeks to get the same feeling as, uh, as, as it's articulated by Mark and written by Mark. And so these literary features give us a window into why this book was written. It was written to give the clearest possible picture into who Jesus was and what he did. That's the purpose of this book. It was written sometime in the mid to late 60s after, um, or AD, which was towards the end of Peter's life and the end of this guy named Nero's reign. And Nero is a really bad man. If you have ever done any research on him, you'll find some really atrocious things that he did to followers of Jesus during that time. And so this book is written at a time where Christians are being persecuted by Nero. And so this book is written in an effort to encourage and confirm the identity of Jesus to these Christians. Like this is who Jesus was, cling to him. This is who he was, cling to him. And this is what he did. So the gospel of Mark as a whole exists to tell us the truth, uh, tell us the true Jesus, the authority that he carries, and to show us how he lived. 
Those are the three things that we are going to get into week after week in the gospel of Mark. And I think we're so in need of that in today's day and age. We are so in need of it. We live in a time where there is false reporting all around us. It's hard to know what is actually true. I don't know if you guys have seen this YouTube video, but there are these men down in California. They dug this massive hole down at a beach in Southern California. There's just this massive hole. Just got out there with shovels, dug a hole, and they went home later that night, got on the news, and there were some reporters saying like, oh, there was a meteor that struck here, and this is how we know, and all this stuff. And these guys are just laughing because they're like, we dug that hole. Like, there was no meteor. There was nothing here. You guys are pretending to know stuff that doesn't even exist. We live in a time where authority is challenged all the time. Authority is constantly being challenged. Even in my own home, there's a vying for the authority over the snack drawer with Levi. Like, authority is challenged in the world all around us, and so we need Jesus' authority to rule and reign in our lives, and I think that's what Mark gives us here. So today, first 13 verses of chapter one is what we're going to work through. And this means that we're going to be, um, this means that there are things that need to take place before Jesus would go into his earthly ministry. Next week, we'll get into verses 14 and 15. But today is all about Jesus' preparation before he jumps into his earthly ministry. And so the text that we're working through today, it answers two questions for us. Number one, Who's Jesus? Who's the person of Jesus that we need to cling to? And number two, what authority does he hold? What authority does he hold? And so if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and open it up. Uh, Verse one says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. That's the first verse. In ancient times, the first line, first sentence of any literature is gonna be one of two things. The title or the purpose of that piece of literature. And so here we see the beginning are the first two words, literally the beginning. And I don't think Mark used that word, those words, just on a whim. I think he used those words very intentionally. If you go to John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, who is also probably referring to Genesis 1 in the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this account of the life of Jesus is the beginning of something profound. Much like the creation story, something incredible is taking place right here. Something that will alter the course of human history is occurring. Something that is altering the course of human history is happening. Jesus, the long-awaited Savior and King of his people, the one who was foretold in Genesis 3, he's here. The beginning, the, the start of all things being made new is Jesus in this moment. So Jesus is the beginning of all things being made new. Jesus is the beginning of all things being made new. Next phrase that you see is good news, or some of your uh, copies of scripture might say gospel. Well, gospel is translated from the Greek word euangelion. This word, before uh, the word gospel was the, basically a primary noun for Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, as we know it today, it was often trying to articulate the victory of a battle 
a victory of a political race. Like that's what that word was used to describe. Euangelion was a life, was life-changing news. It was life-changing news that couldn't be ignored. And it often had incredibly dramatic effects on the daily lives of its recipients. I've had incredible implications. So when Boise received the Euangelion of In-N-Out, opening up near the village, we went nuts, right? How many of you guys have been? Been twice this weekend, um, ashamedly. But the city of Boise was longing for this good news and altered the course of my weekends, maybe yours as well. But it was evidenced by the eight hours people waited on that very first day in the drive through line. Like, it changed the way that people thought about food, maybe for a very short time. But in my opinion, it's worth it. It's worth it. Not the eight hours, but it's worth going and getting. But this good news that Mark is talking about right here isn't just good news of a victory or a battle, though there is some of those things within it. It's good news of a person. Good news of a person. Jesus is that good news that Mark identifies right here. And so Jesus is good news to sinful people. Jesus is good news to sinful people. And while you might be familiar with the name Jesus, with the name Messiah that you see, maybe familiar with the phrase son of God, the title son of God. I want to do a moment, I have a moment where I help you guys understand where exactly these names even came from. And so let's start with Jesus. The name of Jesus is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And Yeshua translates as Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the personal, intimate name of God. In the book of Luke, we find Mary, Jesus' mother, was told to give the baby boy that she was to have. A, a, the name from the angel Gabriel is given, and it's Jesus. And Jesus means Yahweh saves. God saves. And the next name is not a name at all. It's more of a title. It's the Messiah. Messiah is, an interchangeable, is interchangeable with Christ, similar to that. And both titles mean anointed one. Both titles mean one chosen to serve as a holy priest or a divine king. And throughout Israel's history, they are promised the coming of a king that would rule and reign. Think about Isaiah 9.6. Often we talk about this passage and this verse specifically around Christmas. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He'll be king. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his greatness, and or sorry, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So Jesus is coming to rule and reign forever. That is Messiah. The Messiah is a king who will end all suffering and pain once and for all and establish a kingdom of justice and peace. That is who Jesus is. This Messiah is God himself. Jesus is the Messiah. And lastly, the title Son of God. Often there is Greek mythology around this idea of being the son of a god, and there was even moments where Julius Caesar and his successor Augustus called themselves sons of gods. But like the title Christ, however, the Jewish people were looking forward to someone who would be the son of God that would come and be divine in and of himself. And so Jesus is claimed to be in this moment, son of God. 
And so this summary statement of the book of Mark in verse 1, we can't overlook it. There are some deep-rooted truths in the person of who Jesus is just within these first couple of words. And at face value, as you break down this verse, this is an audacious claim. Like, this is absolutely crazy unless it is 100% true. Then this means the world to us. And so to answer the first question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the usher of the beginning of all peoples being restored to God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. And Jesus alone is worthy of our praise and worship. And he's the one that all of Scripture points to. With the Old Testament pointing forward, the New Testament pointing back, it is all pointing to Jesus himself. So next, Mark works into an Old Testament prophecy in verses 2 through 3 that articulates the messenger that is going to come before Jesus. So a quick transition from the get-go. This is who Jesus is, and this is who's coming before him. Verses 2 through 3 says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And it's really fascinating. The more you study this book, that Mark, it's fascinating that Mark even includes an Old Testament prophecy because he's primarily writing towards Roman Gentiles, which would have who would have no background in these ancient Hebrew texts. But he introduces the quote with a phrase that was really well known and really important. And it is written. That phrase at that point in time, that moment in history would have signified what comes after that is absolutely important. It carries legal weight even. It is absolutely important for them to notice these words and abide by them because their life depends on it. And so who is coming? Jesus has been declared of and has authority. His coming carries weight, and it carries authority, and it should be paid attention to, even for those that are not raised up in this tradition. So the readers would have read this and understood this weighty declaration of someone that is coming before Jesus. This is important here. He's going to prepare The guy that is coming is going to prepare the people to receive the euangelion, the good news of Jesus. That is his role. And so this is John the Baptist that we're talking about here. And he's the one who shows up in verse 4. John the Baptist is the one that is prophesied about just before verse 4. And he shows up baptizing people in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what John is doing in this moment is preparing the way for Jesus, making straight the path for Jesus. And because of what he does, people are deciding to get baptized, which means to be submerged underwater. And to, he's saying, turn away from your sin and proclaim your faith in God. Turn from your own ways and trust God. And people are deciding to get baptized. And that's why John has his name, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, because that's just what he was doing. And so this word repentance that you see in verse 4, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, means to change one's mind. So these people, as they, they are deciding that they do not want to live their own way, they want to follow after God. And so in this moment, when they re- repent for the forgiveness of sins, and they are baptized because of it, they are choosing for themselves who they want to serve because they know the one that is coming is worthy. 
this declaration of this person that is coming is worthy of their repentance, is worthy of their allegiance. And all in this moment, if you could picture what's happening in this moment of John just baptizing person after person as they repent and believe in the coming Savior of Jesus, John the Baptist gets pretty popular, right? People start saying like, oh man, maybe this guy's Elijah. Maybe this guy's the one that we need to follow. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not the one worth following here. I'm not the main act. I'm just a guy that dresses in crazy clothes and eats funny stuff. And you can dive more into that on your own if you'd like in verse six. But he's specifically preparing the way for someone far greater than himself. He says that in verses seven and eight, when he says, after me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So as John baptizes individuals, he grows in popularity. He deflects the worship from himself towards Jesus. And untying sandals and washing feet, that was something for slaves at the time. He says, I'm not even worthy of that. That is how great and powerful and mighty and holy Jesus is. You don't even understand. He's the one with the complete authority, not me. I'm just paving the way for him. I'm going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with something greater, the Holy Spirit. God's the very spirit he's going to baptize you with. And what a promise that was to Jesus' followers. And that's not only something mentioned in this moment. You look forward in John 14. John 14, there's a moment where Jesus promises that his followers will receive a gift and a helper in the Holy Spirit. Those who repent and believe in the finished work of Jesus receive God's very spirit. It's beautiful. Next, let's jump into verses 9 through 11. We see Jesus' baptism where we're going to spend quite some time. It says, at the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. It says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Last March, I got to take a trip to Israel, experience the Jordan River, watch my little brother profess his faith in Jesus through baptism in the Jordan. And it was really hard for me to not think about this moment in time where Jesus is getting baptized, heaven's being torn open, God audibly speaks, and everyone hears that he, God is pleased with Jesus. This whole moment unfolding. It was hard for me to focus on Samuel at times and think about, because I'm just caught up in this moment where Jesus is getting baptized, odds are... It wasn't where I physically was and all of the commercialization and pain to get baptized like rubbed me the wrong way, obviously. And at the same time, there's a beautiful moment taking place right here that has incredible implications for us. And I'll walk through three implications of what Mark describes right here. Because three things that just happened in that text in many ways inaugurate the coming of the kingdom of God to earth, to us. Make available to us some incredible things. The first thing, heaven is torn open. Heaven is torn open. As much as we try to imagine maybe this part unfolding and being there and watching heaven being torn open, the descriptive words that he's using. If you did a quick word study on this phrase, you're going to see that the word that Mark uses here is only used in scripture 
at certain places where there is cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power. Think about the parting of the Red Sea. That's where a word like this would have been used. That's where a word like this would have been used. And the word is trying to help its readers comprehend the magnitude of the event taking place. Like this is a really big deal. And Mark only uses it one other time in his entire gospel account. And that's later in chapter 15, where the prison guard confesses faith in Jesus. And the the temple uh, curtain is torn into from top to bottom. That's the only other place Mark uses this word and the implications of the temple veil being, or curtain being torn in two means that God's people have access to him without a mediator. We have direct access to God because of our faith in Jesus. And that is crazy. That, made, that would have made no sense to the Jewish reader at the time that we have direct access to God. And that's the same language that he's using here when heaven is torn open. Heaven being torn open means that you have access to salvation. You have a pathway to salvation. You have a pathway to the presence of God. It's a way for you to enter God's presence. God's people no longer have to go through intermediaries and priests in order to uh, be with God and experience God's presence and receive forgiveness from him. Jesus becomes that, and we have direct access now. So heaven tearing open is that cataclysmic event that not only reveals the power of God, but the grace of God to make a way for his people. That is huge for us. Second thing we see, the spirit of God comes upon Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see stories of God's spirit at work. Usually there are moments like moment by moment, the spirit empowers certain individuals to do incredible works of God. That's usually what we see, whether that is Joseph interpreting dreams, the prophets, all the major prophets have moments where they get to see with God's eyes, what's happening in the world and remind Israel of what the true way is. Something that's unique about this moment in time is that it's not just this, you get access to the Spirit at this one point in time to have this incredible act to give a ton of glory to God. No, we get access to the Spirit of God every moment of every day when we have faith in Jesus. The access to God's Spirit is consistent. It's consistent at this point in time. So the Spirit comes upon Jesus, uh, beginning that thing for us as well, beginning that for us as well. So that is big for us. It's a huge implication. Third one, God says to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At this moment, God the Father is affirming Jesus's sonship. Jesus is in fact his son, affirming his deity, his his godhood, his authority is made very, very clear to us in this moment. Jesus has all authority. And as we're going to move through the gospel of Mark, you're going to see his authority unfold in a plethora of ways over bodily injury. You're going to watch him heal people. You're going to see him provide more food out of very little food. He has authority over food. And most importantly, he has authority over the sickness of human hearts, which is sin. So a couple examples for you. Abraham, he's called a friend of God in Isaiah 41. Moses, he's called a servant of God in Deuteronomy. Aaron is called a chosen one of God. David is called a man after God's own heart. Paul is called an apostle of God. Only Israel up to this point has been called a son of God. 
the sons of God. But as Israel failed, Jesus steps in and takes their place. Jesus becomes the perfect son, the one without sin, the one with perfect relationship with him, that perfectly lives out God's design, God's will. So God, though, he doesn't just affirm his authority. He speaks of his love for him and being pleased with him. And this shows the fatherly, intimate relationship that God has, not only with Jesus, but with his people. There's a deep love present, and it pleases God that Jesus would come to earth and take the form of man in utter humility. And why does this please God? Well, resonate, God loves you so deeply. You serve a God that not only gave up his own son for you to have eternal life, not only eternal life, though. He, he gave up Jesus so that you could experience life now. You could experience healing now. That you can experience the presence of God now. That you can experience the coming perfect kingdom of God now. But Jesus, he's not quite ready to step into ministry even just yet. We have 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13 left. It says that once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness... He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Here's the first verbal quick transition that you see. Coming from a moment which we would consider a mountaintop type of moment. Jesus gets baptized, receives the spirit. God says some things to him that are incredible. And it's Mark writes immediately, quickly, right after this. Jesus is sent out by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by Satan. If you want to read the, um, at length what happens in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan, you can flip over to Matthew and Luke because they record it at length. But for some reason, Mark keeps it just to two verses, hardly uh, touching the actual interaction between the two. But out of all of this, this is all that Mark records about Jesus' preparation before he goes into his earthly ministry. So those first 13 questions, they answer two questions for us. That was really, really important to the people at the time and should be important to us today. One, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what authority does he have? I want to introduce us to a third question that I believe is going to be helpful for us and lead us into a response today. How are we preparing to take part in God's mission in the world? How are we preparing? Jesus prepared. Those 13 verses were just being prepared to step into his earthly ministry, which we'll jump into next week. But before we get there, I want each of us to have a moment to consider how God might want to prepare you right now for not just this next semester of collegiate ministry or this next year of reaching your coworkers in the city of Boise, but when you're 80 years old, if we're still here by that point in time, like, is there things that God wants to prepare within you to make you more useful for his kingdom? And I think there are three things that we see within the text that we can cling to. And then there's some other things I want to bring before us as well. So just within the text, number one, we see um, Jesus is baptized. This means there's a profession of faith that needs to take place in order to participate in God's kingdom movement in the world. This means that we need to be baptized and be fully submitted to him. So does God have all authority and power? Absolutely. Does God give his created beings an ability to choose him or not? I believe so. I believe so. 
as John is baptizing people for the repentance and forgiveness of sins, like we talked about, they're logically choosing Jesus' way over their own. Yeah, there are spiritual works at play, and God transforms hearts, absolutely. But in the same breath, we get to choose Jesus moment after moment. And so, in order to be on Jesus' team, taking, pushing back darkness, you, you need to confess and believe in the finished work of Jesus. And baptism is the proclamation of what has transpired in your heart. So a real practical question for you is, have you confessed that Jesus is who he says he is? All that we covered about who Jesus is, are you like, I believe that about Jesus? Well, then beyond that, he also died for you on that cross, bearing the weight of your sin because we could not. And he made for the perfect sacrifice. And upon his resurrection, he claims power over, victory, or power over death, power over sin. And if you confess and believe in the finished work of Jesus, you are saved. And as we submit our lives to Christ, we proclaim it through baptism. That's what's happening. So number one uh, is baptism. Number two, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. So just as Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, do you allow the Spirit of God to direct your life? Do you allow the Spirit of God to direct the very decisions that you make? moment by moment, day after day? Are you attentive to what the Spirit might be doing in your heart, in your soul? And are you submissive to the Spirit of God? Jesus is in this moment. He submits to the Spirit. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days. So do you listen and respond in obedience? The Spirit shows up throughout Scripture in a plethora of ways. I don't believe the Spirit of God is predictable. As we read the book of Mark, I think you'll agree with me. There is so many moments where you couldn't write a script like this. You would not have thought that this is how it would play out. But one thing that you do know is that the Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to something outside of God's design, never going to lead you into sin. And so as the Spirit leads you, as you feel the promptings of the Spirit, you can go to Scripture and say, is this within God's will? And if it is, Absolutely, let's go. Let's make it happen. When you know that things are within God's will and you feel the Spirit prompting you, do you submit in obedience in that moment? Because if you read John 14 all the way through, you'd see that the Holy Spirit is meant to be a helper. Someone that is with you at all moments of the day. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples that they will receive God's power when the Spirit comes upon them and is dwelling in them, just as Jesus receives in that moment when he is baptized. Number three, continue saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. And so Jesus is driven into the wilderness, tested by Satan himself. And one commentator of the Gospel of Mark mentions this idea that it was a moment for Jesus to show the Father that though he has received all power on, in heaven and on earth, he would not use it for his own gain. It was all about God's will in that moment. And forever, it's all about God's will. Jesus was fully submitted to the will of God the Father. I don't think this text is prescriptive. I don't think you need to go into the wilderness for 40 days to understand that. Maybe that is for you. Go for it. Take a backpacking trip. But I think there is something real for us to consider in this moment. As you look at your life, the ways that you've been tempted, the ways that you've fallen into sin habitually over the course of your life for the last year, do you, do you find yourself saying no to that sin more often than before? 
As you look at the year 2023, did you find yourself saying no to sin and yes to Jesus in certain areas more often than before? And if that's the case, praise God. It seems like you're obeying the Spirit's prompting as you were convicted, as you were, are drawn out of sin and into God's glorious, glorious grace. And so to conclude our time together today, how do you want to prepare for a life filled with ministry? How do you want to prepare for a life filled with serving God? This might look like the three that I listed above. Maybe you need to have a moment where you confess and believe in the finished work of Jesus. Be baptized and proclaim your faith in him. Maybe that's where you need to start and praise God for that. I'd love to help you through that. Maybe you think of some other ways that you want to grow in your usefulness to God. You might think of knowing your Bible more deeply, spending more time studying scripture so that you can understand what God's word says. You can articulate to your friends and the people you're trying to witness to. You might think about memorizing certain pieces of scripture that are really helpful to encourage and build up people around you on a whim. I think of in, in really inviting for the first time people into your life where you might struggle with sin so that you may walk in purity and holiness so that you might be freed from those sins and, and even healed as your fellow believers pray over you by the power of Jesus. You might think back to our series, Working Through Colossians, and remember certain areas where you might lack Christian maturity and be like, I need to grow in these things. Friends, can you help me grow and mature in Christ? Because it seemed really important to Paul that there would be a day that he would present to Christ everyone mature in Jesus. So think back on those areas where you might desire to grow. So resonate a great hope of mine as we continue to work through the gospel of Mark is that we would aim to imitate the very life of Jesus. I think that's part of why Mark says a lot about what Jesus did so we could imitate him. And Jesus is absolutely worth imitating. He's absolutely worth imitating. Beyond that, Jesus, he's Messiah, son of God, carries all authority, all authority over our lives, over the lives of the people around us. He's worthy of our praise and our worship, our submission and our imitation. He's worthy of all of those things because he lived in perfection. All the while, we know that that last thing that God says to Jesus, he says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And resonate church, when you are in Christ, God can say those same things to you. God is now pleased with you when you're in Christ. And so as you prepare yourself, as you prepare yourself to be useful in God's hands for the work of his mission, remember that God is pleased with you because of your saving faith in Jesus. That is why God is pleased with you. Let me pray to that end. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for sending Jesus. We, we praise you that Jesus is Messiah. He is King, he is ruler, he holds all authority. God, we praise you that you are a loving and gracious God who tore open heaven and gave us access to you through Jesus. We praise you for that. God, we praise you for this example of preparing Jesus for the work of ministry. And God, would you do the same within us? Would you teach us? Would you grow us? Would you convict us? Lead us towards repentance where we need to repent and, and free us up for the work of ministry, God. Lord, I'm excited to see where you take our church over this series. God, would you continue to speak to us? And we praise you through all of it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.